What kind of impact would it have on your career if you could be mentored by Tim Ferriss, Brene Brown, Cal Newport, Oprah Winfrey, Les Brown, Ryan Holiday, James Clear, and Carol Dweck? This is just a handful of the top thinkers from the last decade. And the great news is we can receive their mentorship. No, I don't have a special lottery program where you can enter to win a free mentoring session, unfortunately. But I have something even better. A book. Yes, all these top thinkers are also authors. And they've condensed the knowledge they've gained from decades of experience into an organized format that costs less than $20, even free if you're savvy about it. Today, we are talking about the power of books. My friend Nick Hutchinson from Book Thinkers is going to teach us how to boost your career through effective reading. Nick and I get into all kinds of reading techniques like note-taking strategies, how to read faster, finding time to read, and when to stop reading a book that isn't serving you. If you're ready to take your career and life to the next level by reading impactful books, well, this is the episode for you. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the creator of Book Thinkers, a massive online community of book lovers, and the author of the newly minted book, Rise of the Reader, Nick Hutchinson. You know those moments where you think, I wish I would have learned this in school? Those are the topics that we love to talk about. Join me each week as I interview experts sharing their strategies for solving problems that us young adults will face throughout our 20s and 30s. So what are you waiting for? If you want new episodes about adulting advice every Monday, hit that follow button. Well, Nick, I'm excited about this conversation. I think this fits really nicely into the series that we're currently in, which is your map to professional growth. I think a lot of people have heard the concept, readers are leaders, and they know there's a whole lot of information in books that they could potentially utilize to improve their lives. But I think few act on it. So my purpose, my goal with this episode is to A, get people excited about reading again, but then B, also give some breadcrumbs and framework to how they can best utilize and be most effective whenever they are taking that first step into reading. And you have a book out there that you've, you've written called Rise of the Reader, subtitled Strategies for Mastering Your Reading Habits and Applying What You've Learned. We'll only touch on maybe a fraction of what's actually in your book. So of course, go and pick that book up and you can actually implement and take all the different things that you've talked about here. I wanna kick things off with a question that I think we're, we're probably going to get pushback on right away, which is, how do I find time to read as a busy professional? I think this is probably the, the biggest obstacle that many of us face. It's really hard to find time in our day to do the things like spend time with family and friends and all of that, let alone actually spending some time to sit down and read. What's your typical rebuttal to this whenever somebody brings up this objection? Two things. Number one, I love to ask people, if I paid you $10,000 to finish a book by the end of the month, do you think you could do it? And that same person who just told me they can't read books, they were like, well, I could read five, right? <laughs> so it's not a question of whether or not we can read these books. It's a question of whether or not we prioritize them because we value them. And so let's say that we do value them. We want to insert reading into our calendar, but we're not sure how to make it happen. I love to say, instead of trying to find time, because most likely you are already using all 24 hours every day, let's replace some low impact activity that doesn't serve our future self, 
with reading a great personal development book. As little as 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes in the evening, if you follow that math, about 20 pages a day, five days a week, that's 100 pages a week. Most of these books are only 200 pages nowadays. That's a book every two weeks. That's 26 books over the next 12 months by replacing a little social media in the morning and a little bit of your Netflix in the evening. I'm not a robot. I'm not like, don't ever watch Netflix again, but just replace the first 15 minutes with a great book and magical things can happen. 26 different areas of your life can improve over the next 12 months, 15 minutes twice a day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even if you cut that in half and you're only looking for 15 minutes a day, not even 30 minutes of your day, you're still talking about somewhere but probably between 10 and 15 books, depending on how quickly you're reading and what the size of the books are, which would be a huge goal for many people that, that maybe haven't read a book in a couple of years. Yeah, I think so too. You know, I've, I've probably been caught saying this a few times on the internet, but these books literally condense decades of somebody else's lived experience, the research they've conducted, the life lessons they've learned into days of reading. Mm. And so <laughs> I've been only saying this recently, but yeah, I'm 29 years old, but if you include the 500 plus books that I've read, I'm thousands of years old. I mean, <laughs> that's what these books do for you. They're the best shortcut. They help you solve problems, build skill sets and everything in between. And so I do think that our ability to read as a population is one of the most underutilized skill sets that we have available to us today. Mm. Because there is no better ROI than spending $20 in a few hours of your time learning millions or billions of dollars worth of lessons. I mean, it's, it's, you can't beat that. Yeah. And, and we'll debunk this, but I don't even think you need to spend a dollar. I mean, there's so many, you have so much access to, to books for free or for, for cheap. I was actually just over at the Goodwill bulk collection. I don't know if you've done this before, but they're like Goodwill, like rolls these bins out and like a lot of thrifters go to these things and they'll pick up like really nice, like sweaters or things like that. And a lot of people are like reselling them. And my girlfriend and I, we were looking for a painting because she has a craft project that she's working on right now. So we went and we were trying to find something. And I just realized they were rolling these bins out and people were picking through them. And the things that were left were just like bins and bins of books. And I picked up 10 books on just, or just like looking at the titles and the subtitles and throwing them into my cart because it was 20 cents a book for me to buy. I bought 10 books for $2. It was insane. <laughs> and I was just like, this is awesome. Like I have, my re I have my reading already on my shelves for like almost the next three, four months right now. And it's all areas that were of interest of me. It could be sales, it could be gardening, it could be bird watching. It was like anything and everything that I, I kind of had a peak interest in. And I love this like concept about decades into days because I hear from so many people, well, only if I had access to to these people, you know, their mentorship, their guidance. Well, you do. Many of these people have spent, you know, a whole year thinking about the impact and and the lessons they've learned throughout their their entire career and their entire life condensing it down into a nice 260 pages in an organized format and handing it over to the public for $20, sometimes even cheaper if you're, you're willing to, to go thrift for them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes as humans, we think our pains, you know, the problems that we're dealing with are individual to us. They're unique to us. But the reality is that about 100 billion people have lived before us. Millions of them have written books. Tens of millions of them have written books. And thousands of those books are probably relevant to the same problem that you're facing today or the skill set that you're looking to develop. And so, you know, when I read books on Stoic philosophy, you know, Marcus Aurelius, Meditations, his journal, 
written almost 2,000 years ago. He was the most powerful person in the world, but he was struggling with, how do I get out of bed and find motivation, right? Yeah. We're, we've always been facing the same <laughs> problems as humans. Our, our brains haven't really updated over the last 2,000, I mean, 50,000 years, but our yeah. environments have. And so, yeah, some people have figured out how to live. And we could go read books about how to live, the shortcuts that they figured out, the life lessons that they've learned. And I think it's a beautiful way to invest our time. Yeah, let's double click into that area and, and maybe turn things a little bit more personal too. You quote, the right book at the right time can change your life. Can you give me an example of a book that you picked up in a specific period of your life that that really changed the trajectory of, of where you're headed? Yes, I have so many examples <laughs> like that. <laughs> but I'll give an example from last year. So I picked up $100 million offers by Alex Hormozzi. And it's a book on offer creation for service-based businesses. I run a service-based business. And I read the book with the intention of essentially finding a way to increase my average deal size. So it's a business book. And I jump into that book and I implemented a couple things from it. And I generated an additional six figures in revenue for my small business in a couple of months. So talk about ROI. I invested $20 in a few hours of my time and I generated over $100,000 in additional revenue, service-based revenue for my business in just a few months. That's the power of a book. And I'll be telling that story for a long time because I think sometimes, you know, that example, if I gave you $10,000 to read a book by the end of the month, do you think you could do it? That's what I see when I look at these books. I see an incredible amount of value. You know, when, it, when I think of Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson, what a wonderful biography. Apple's a trillion dollar company. There are trillions of dollars of lessons in that book. And you could get it for free for 20 cents for a few dollars. I mean, it's so amazing. That's a, a book that I read last year that's had a tremendous impact on my business. And as a result of that book, revenue this year has been amazing as well. And so, yeah, it's, it's the power of these books. You know, it helped me solve a problem. How do I increase my average deal size and create a better offer? I found the book that solved that specific problem and I ran with it. And is that how you're typically making the selections on what books to read? Are you identifying some issues or obstacles in your own life and then turning to books and, and trying to figure out what author, what book might best fit or have the solution that I'm looking for? Yes, when I was first starting my reading journey, it was about reading as many books as I could, right? Mm -hmm. I was optimizing for the number of books that I was reading, and I was trying to read on all sorts of different subjects. And I think it's important to read wide when you're first starting so that you get a better understanding of what you enjoy, what types of subjects are interesting to you. It also creates a little bit of awareness because you consume so many different diverse perspectives on areas for improvement. And so when you're first starting, again, for anybody that's listening today, I say read about as many different subjects as you can. Find authors that you enjoy reading, read more of their books, read the books they recommend. As you continue to mature in your reading journey, maybe you're aware now that you have a very specific set of problems or a very specific set of skills that you'd like to develop, then you can kind of handpick the books that are best suited for your individual intention, the problems you have, the skills that you want to develop. But I don't think that awareness is easy to find early in the journey. At least it wasn't for me. I think that's a good call out. And plus, there's just like so much opportunity to just start to learn some of the core concepts that many books translate, especially in the self-help life optimization space. I remember like my brain was on fire the first 10, 20 books that I read. And all of this was like just 
conceptually like really new to me. And you pick up like some of the framework books and personal finance and habit creation and, you know, some of these other areas and you're just like, whoa. And then, I mean, as you dive deeper into that subject, you have to find more granular subject matter related to that for the novelty to really set in. But yeah, I just, I remember the first year or two reading, I was just like, my, I felt like I was, I was just like in student mode all of the time. Yeah, me too. The first book that I ever read was Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. And I probably had 20 different aha moments throughout that reading experience. (laughs) You know, it was like every single page offered something brand new and mind blowing. And yes, that definitely happens less often today after having read hundreds of these books. But I still find myself excited and curious and looking for something new and finding something new in essentially every single book that I do choose to read. Yeah, so let's move to implementation because I think this is an important part of reading. I I do the approach of casting a wide net and honestly just getting in the rhythm and the habit of reading. But eventually you get to that place where you're like, wow, I just read 10, 20 books and I feel like I haven't implemented enough or I haven't really taken advantage of the books itself. So I really kind of want to now focus most of this conversation on how, how to not only pick up the habit of reading, but start to implement some of the practices and the things that we're learning with inside these books. So I want to start with intention. And you mentioned it when you were talking about Alex Ramosi's book too, that your intention going into that book was this. And me knowing you, actually realizing that was not just like, looking back at, you know, reading that book, this is what I was trying to get from it. But no, that was probably something you set in stone whenever you picked the book up. So can you talk to me a little bit about how you define your intention before reading uh, a book and how that helps with retention in general whenever you read. Yeah, and and this, this concept of intention is continuing to evolve. So what I do today, like as of this moment, is I try to set a SMART goal, and I call that an intention, a SMART goal for each book that I read. So let's say I'm reading Alex's new book, $100 Million Leads, right? It's all about lead generation for businesses. I'm not just going to read the book in its entirety and hope that it's going to change my life. (laughs) I'm going to set a SMART goal for the book, something that is specific, measurable, attainable, meaning realistic, relevant, meaning I'm emotionally connected to it, and time-bound. And so instead of just reading it blindly, I'll say I'm looking to find and implement at least two lead generation strategies for my business, book thinkers, by the end of September. And now I'll write that intention on the inside cover of the book and I'll review it each and every time I read a few more pages so that my brain can filter for those actions to implement. Because again, if you don't set an intention for a book, you're going to miss opportunities to take action and have the book solve the very specific problem or develop the very specific skill that you're intending to have it solve. And so as I read, let's just say that that is my intention find and implement at least two strategies or two lead generation strategies for book thinkers by the end of September. By the time I'm done reading that book, I may have marked off 10, 15 potential actions to take. And so the end of this process sort of looks like I'm going to rewrite all of my favorite takeaways from the book, all of those potential actions. And then I'll analyze that list and I'll say, what 20% of these actions can lead to 80% of the change that I'm looking to make? Because not every action is created equal. Some of them are more difficult to implement, and some of them will have a higher impact on my business. And so I'll just choose to take action on those two or three things instead of the entire book. 
And so again, the measurable piece, I think, to that goal is very important, which I'm consistently up upgrading my smart goal framework because you need to know whether or not the book helped you achieve its goal. So many times, like I'll ask somebody, hey, have you read $100 million leads or, or $100 million offers? And they're like, I'm not sure. I'm like, how are you not sure whether or not you've even read a book? <laughs> Never mind, like, did it actually do anything for you? Can, re- can you remember anything constructive? Did you take any action? And so, yeah, I think the intention piece is incredibly important. It's crazy whenever you actually define your desired outcome, what your brain actually goes looking for. I, reticular activating system. You have this, like, you, you talk about this in your book. It, it's like a natural highlighter. Like, since you are reading the inside cover, looking at your intention before you start reading, like your brain is now scanning for solutions to that intention. And I think it's just like a really cool concept to make sure you're getting the most out of books. So you you started talking a little bit about your note-taking process too. So if I have this right, sounds like you go through, you flag different parts that could aid within your intention for the book. And I'm, I'm sure there's probably some other gold nuggets that that you, you highlight or, or do something with too. And then you dump these notes into, I'm guessing, some kind of repository after the fact. Do you digitize these these notes? What's your your process look like for for the the note taking out of the book into some other kind of system? Yeah. So to address the first part real quick, I think one mistake a lot of people make is they task switch between reading and note taking. Mm-hmm. When you're reading. I think if you can stay your reading and only just flag potential notes and then go back and and record them at a later date as a separate activity, you'll be much more efficient than trying to do both at the same time. I I definitely Uh, stole that from you too. As soon as I read that, I was like, oh, that makes sense. I actually changed my process halfway through reading your book because (laughs) of the the task switching. And I was like, ah, I don't know. But now I I circle the, the page number and then just quote out what I'm looking or underline what I'm looking for, depending on how big it is and how how messy I feel like writing the book is. <laughs> yeah, well, that's perfect. I think, you know, if you were to take somebody who task switches the entire time versus somebody who just reads the book all the way through and then goes back and rereads the most important pieces, maybe rewrites them, it's much, it's a shorter block of time if you do the activities individually than it would be to do them at the same time. So it's more efficient from a productivity standpoint. But I also think that by separating out the note-taking and going back and rereading and kind of understanding the information again, that's a form of repetition and repetition leads to retention. Mm, yeah. So my process looks like this today. I will rewrite those, let's say 15 flags. I'll rewrite them physically on a piece of paper first. And then I will record them again in an online notebook. I use Evernote. And so for me, that act of rewriting with my actual pen on paper, there's something visceral about it. You can feel it, it's tangible. Yeah. And I, I think there actually is some data around you can improve retention more efficiently by writing longhand as compared to just typing. But then I'll type everything <laughs> into my online notebook so that it's also accessible on other devices and that way back in the day, I used to write everything just on paper and I lost one of those notebooks oh, and yikes. I had my notes from like 25 different books. And that was super early into my journey and I'm like, okay, I need to back up everything or at least take a picture of my physical notes now. But yeah, I record everything in Evernote. And again, repetition leads to retention. And I'm repeating that because then you'll remember it. But repetition leads to retention. So if you can 
review those notes again, reflect on them, rewrite them onto paper, then rewrite them into an online notebook, and then review them consistently. That's how you strengthen that neural connection to the information that you've learned. I got a couple of follow-up questions. Um, kind of going back again on on the the flagging process. Do you circle the page number, highlight or, or underline quote things, and do you have any other kind of like shorthand abbreviations? If there's like a different category of notes that you you have, because of the nature of my business, there's really two styles of reading for me, which I don't talk much about in the book because it wouldn't be useful to the mm-hmm. average reader, but. There's, there's reading for myself, and I do exactly what you just mentioned. I will always circle or highlight a page number so that as I'm skimming through the book, I can find the page where the information is relevant. And then I will either A, highlight the entire section that I'd like to revisit and that I think is related to my intention, or just bracket it off. Mm-hmm. And if something is super powerful, I will star it. So I always have a pen and a highlighter at a bare minimum available when reading a physical paper book. The other style of reading that I do is for social media, just given the nature of my business. Mm -hmm. So if I'm doing a paid book review for an author and they're paying me to share a preview of their book with my audience, I'm only highlighting useful information in the first couple of chapters for my community to highlight kind of key points, key takeaways, give people a preview for the book so they can make a better purchasing decision. So that's a lot of what you see on social media. But behind the scenes in my own process, it's like what you mentioned. It's highlighting or circling a page number, starring if it's extremely important, and then just kind of bracketing or highlighting everything that's in the actual page. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I have two delineations as well. Whenever I'm interviewing an author like yourself, I might have a couple of shorthands knowing that I'm translating my notes into an interview document. So I might put key questions. So KQ next to something. Or if I know I want to reference a quote that they mentioned, I will quote it versus bracket it. Little things like that to, to just help my, my translation process a little bit. But yeah, I think we're, we're probably fairly aligned whenever it comes to taking notes with books. <laughs> yes. In terms of improving reading speed, as a reader, I feel like I'm a slow reader. And I sympathize with other people that also mention that they're slow readers. So I want to talk about a little bit of strategy around improving reading speed, because I do think it's something that you can practice and, and that you can improve on. I was really relating whenever in your book, you were talking about drifting and part of a process for helping with drifting is to read at a faster pace. And you have this like analogy with a car. I think it's Jim Quick's analogy that, that you stole and, and utilized, but I think that was really solid. So can you talk a little bit about improving your reading speed and, and kind of what that can do for actual retention? Sure. I'll state first that reading is a skill and every skill can be improved. So when people tell me that they are slow readers, I think they just need to practice reading more. Mm -hmm. When I first started, I was a very, 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 very slow reader. (laughs) I mean, it would take me forever to get through these books. Are you talking like two minutes a page or something? Probably. Yeah, Yeah. probably. (laughs) Fast forward until today, I mean, I could read at four or 500 words per minute pretty, pretty easily. And I don't leverage all of the speed reading techniques mm-hmm. that are available to us today because they're kind of advanced. And at least for my book, it, you know, it's kind of beginning reading strategies. I would say it's not extremely advanced. And so I wanted to make sure that I didn't overwhelm people. Jim Quick, for instance, teaches removing subvocalization, right? Which is reading to yourself while you're reading the book. And there are a bunch of other strategies like only reading, you know, right down the middle of a page, not reading the first or last 
paragraphs or words on each side of a page. I mean, there's so many different ways that people do this. But the analogy that Jim Quick has, which I really love around drifting, is imagine you are driving through a neighborhood and you're going pretty slow. Because you're driving slow, you can focus on the mailboxes and the houses, the cars that you're driving by, like, oh, look, a G-Wagon, that's pretty cool. (laughs) But if you are driving fast, you're speeding through the neighborhood, your eyes are glued to the road because you don't want to make a mistake. You're using your brain's full function. And the same thing happens with reading. If you read really slow, your mind can start to wander because you're not leveraging its full capabilities. But if you read faster, your brain is focused on the page. You can't mess up. It's like speeding through the neighborhood. And so, yeah, I like to think about that analogy. You can actually retain more information by reading faster. And I think it's really because you're not distracted and daydreaming while you're reading at the same time. The other thing that I'd like to mention is that a lot of people, they end up reading at the end of a long day after they put the kids to bed or after they worked for eight hours and then exercised. And it's like, by that time, your willpower is defeated. You know, you're tired, you're sluggish, been through battle, and then you try (laughs) to read a book. It's not the best time to learn. For me, I love to read right after I exercise in the morning and after my first cup of coffee because my energy is at its highest. I have those exercise endorphins flowing and I have my first sip of caffeine. And that's running through my, my veins. And so I'm energized and I'm reading at peak energy because it's that valuable to me. So there's no chance I can fall asleep after the gym and after my first cup of coffee when I sit down to read a good book. So just those are little things to pay attention to. I think reading speed matters, but also your energy matters too. I think I wrote, you know, even the best cup of coffee in the world tastes bitter if you're in a bitter mood. Yeah. So you got to be really careful of like the headspace you're in when you sit down to read. Do you gift books away pretty frequently? I'm guessing you do. And I do. <laughs> do you uh, ask for them back at all? Do you, are you hoping they cycle back or you just kind of let them go with the thought that you're probably never going to see that again? Well, I don't gift books that I've read without having the expectation that they come back to me, but I gift a lot of books. Like I'll buy multiple copies. So in kind of the fun question to kick things off today before we officially started recording, we talked about Die With Zero. That's a book that I've purchased dozens of copies for, for friends and family. Now, if I've read a book and I'll let somebody else read it, they do have to sign and date it and write their own intention now. Cool. And But I always ask for those books back. I have a few that are still missing out there in the universe somewhere, (laughs) but that's okay. Do you keep a library of those? Like, Do you have just a mental note that those books are out there or do you know the, the list that you're missing? I should be a little more system systemized there. Yeah. I, and you know what? Some of those books, it's been years now, so I, I know I'm never getting them back. Ah, that's sad. I like the, the sign and date too, and then you can kind of see where your book has traveled and kind of what other people are, are getting from the book. I think it's a, a really cool concept. But at least I've rewritten my notes. So my notes exist in a digital repository. Yeah. Unless it was part of that notebook that you lost. Yes. That was so early in my reading career. I was I was like, I'm taking notes. This is amazing. And it was, I think I was still at school. It was my senior year at UNH and gone. All yeah. gone. Have you always enjoyed reading? Has this been a passion of yours or did you pick it up somewhere along the road? Yeah, no, I was definitely not a reader growing up. I was more of the athlete, not much of the academic. 
And so I didn't start reading until I was going into my senior year of college. I know I tell the story in the book, but I had taken an internship at a local software company. And when I first started, my boss, Kyle, long story short, introduced me to the world of personal development podcasting. And so I had about an hour commute each way every day to that internship. So I started listening to a ton of podcasts. And so many of the people that were being interviewed, these successful people, and at the time, I really defined success from a financial perspective. So people who were financially successful, they had given at least some credit for their success to the books that they had read. And so I just kind of had this moment where I realized if I was deliberately choosing not to read these books, then I was deliberately choosing to live under my potential. And as an overly competitive kind of, you know, know everything 21 year old, like I was like, (laughs) okay, I, I think I should check some of these books out, even though it's not really up my alley. If all these people are doing it, I should probably do it too. Yeah, you routinely referenced that period of your life, your like kind of early 20s as, I don't know, like a changing of the guard, essentially. It seemed like you didn't, you were disappointed in who you were. You you weren't like in love with yourself and you were, that was extruding into to kind of a, a negative, I don't know, frame of reference for yourself. Do I have that right? Like I, I never felt like I got the clear story whenever I was going through the research on it, but it, it seemed like a really curious time and a definitely a different stage of life for you at that point in time. Yeah. So late teens, early twenties, I think on one side of the spectrum, I had developed an ego because I was so competitive and I was successful at sports and that competitive nature would represent itself at the expense of the people that I was around. And so that was confusing. But then I had all of these insecurities and social anxieties on the other side of the spectrum. I cared way too much about what other people thought. I was, I developed a, a very intense form of awareness around everything in my life. Just like what people were thinking, what I thought they were thinking. And yeah, so because of both of those things, sort of being at different ends of the spectrum, yeah, it was a very confusing place to be. But I started reading these books and removing ego and being of service to other people. And I started reading these books and removing the insecurities and anxieties and gaining more confidence and fulfillment. And so that's why when I say your purpose comes from your pain, like books help me overcome that very confusing time in my life. It's not as dramatic as I think a lot of other people's stories, but those were the things that were confusing to me and that I dealt with at that time. You know, if you would have asked me, I was just confused. I didn't yeah. dislike myself. I was a little mean, a little emotionally reactive, I think, to other people. But I knew I, I could be better and I wanted to be better. You know, I, de- I definitely didn't deal with depression or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But it was more of a, a lack of awareness in the grand scheme of things, but like hyper awareness on the day to day, just like overanalyzing everything. Uh, actually, I, I find it really fascinating that you had some social anxiety and, and the fact that you just identified that. And I love you so much because not only are you like, all right, cool, I have social anxiety. And then you just like embrace that as a quirk, but like you also try to overcome it as well. And you like, kind of like live by this mantra of always putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. Like for some reason you minored in public speaking yet had a ton of social anxiety. And then your first job, like out of college or whatever, or maybe in college was sales door knocking, which probably has to be some of the most anxiety provoking (laughs) jobs that are out there. It's super fascinating. And now you're in this world of travel and 
always putting yourself in uncomfortable positions like that too. Yes. When I was younger, I was the the type of kid who, you know, when we would read in a circle in class, like I'd count ahead how many paragraphs in advance and then practice my paragraph four or five times before I had to read it. Mm-hmm. And I was always thrown for a curve when the teacher would ask somebody else to read an extra paragraph or something. I'm like, no, that's mine. <laughs> I was not confident in my ability to communicate. And that insecurity created a lot of anxiety. Anxiety, as it's defined in my world, is you're anticipating a negative outcome of something happening in the future, like messing up when you give a presentation and being laughed at, which did happen a few times for me. I mean, I had a Spanish presentation one time where I had memorized this entire skit with a partner. I knew it like the back of my hand, but I get up in front of the class and I was supposed to be eating a bowl of popcorn <laughs> while going through this skit. And I dropped the popcorn because I was shaking and I couldn't remember any of my lines. And I just like totally blacked out and then left the classroom. I had moments like that where I was just so embarrassed and it just reinforced this inadequacy as far as my ability to communicate. I also, back then, I couldn't string together a series of words or maybe even a couple of sentences without um, ah, uh, like, but, so, you know, these verbal pauses, you know, I just used one. And I haven't gone through any of those strategies to remove them in a number of years because I gained a level of confidence in my ability to communicate now so I don't really have to focus on it that much. But yeah, it was a tough time for me. And so embracing discomfort, I realized that although school taught me to avoid failure, that through failure, I would learn and I would grow. And so, yeah, I took the door-to-door sales job. I minored in public speaking. And that was also a terrifying experience, even though you're in a classroom full of people who are, who are trying to get better at speaking. The teacher would record you giving a three-minute speech, and then the teacher would say, how many times do you think you used the word like in the last three minutes? Oh, and no. you'd say, well, I don't remember using it at all, maybe two or three times. And then the teacher would play the recording or send you home to watch the recording. I'd go through the video and I would have used it 35 times in three minutes or something like that. A lot of that, it was very uncomfortable, but I, I continued to make progress. After thousands of doors, public speaking classes, Toastmasters, eventually phone sales, then selling in person, working trade shows, then creating social media content, then hosting my own podcast, then being paid to create video content for authors. I've overcome a lot of that. And it was just small steps in the right direction over a very long period of time. So that's the result of where I am today. And I had to embrace that discomfort. Now I don't have any, that's not true. I have some anxiety when speaking, especially like a keynote 45 minute presentation at a conference or something. But if you would have told the 15 year old version of Nick that he'd be interviewed on a podcast and could rant for 10 minutes straight. <laughs> I would have said that'd be very surprising. Very surprising. Yeah. No, I love it. I know you're a big fan of the compound effect and just the 1% improvement and forcing yourself to get the reps every day. Like you become a really good speaker because of all of the things that you just laid out there, not just because you've overcome your anxiety, but you put yourself in enough situations to practice enough and you actually start to see some of the the progress from all of that practice. And and that is now why you're both more confident and just a more competent speaker. And you did, I don't know how many push-ups. 
A lot of push-ups. Yeah, the backstory there is anytime my friends would catch me using a verbal pause, whether we were at the bar or you know, working or whatever, I'd have to drop down and do push-ups. And so I just removed so many of them from my language. I should, I should enroll that again because I know that they've continued to sneak back into my language. And it's kind of like cleaning. You're never done. You always have to clean your house. You always <laughs> have to clean your lawn or your front doorstep. And the same thing with speaking. You can't just remove them and then they're gone forever. You have to constantly pay attention to it. Nick, as we're rounding up this this conversation, I want to get us back on track on on books a little bit, but I enjoyed going down memory lane there and, and sharing a few stories back and forth. What about stopping a book? I remember this being like a huge no-no for me whenever I first started reading. And I, I don't know, maybe you disagree with this, but I, I do think it's probably good practice your first 10 books or so to just finish the entire book. But do you have a practice around when you stop reading a book? Like, is there a amount of pages you're trying to get through or anything in particular, like a system that you put in place that you're like, nope, I'm putting this book down? Because I'm I'm guessing like like many people in your situation, you have way too many books. You're never, even over the course of your whole lifetime, going to get to read every single book that's gifted to you or that you find interesting or that you pick up. When I first started my reading journey, I felt like I had to read every word on every page in order to count the book. Yeah. So I was optimizing for the wrong thing. I, I agree with you in that people should read an entire book, maybe the first 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 books they read. But over time, as you start to improve the skill set of taking action, that's what you're optimizing for. You're not optimizing for the number of books you've read. That's a vanity metric. It doesn't really count for much. Mm -hmm. You're optimizing for the fulfillment of your goal. If the book is supposed to generate more leads for you and you find great strategies on page one, you can put down the book. Ryan Holiday and Tim Ferriss talked about something called the rule of 100, which I love. So you take the number 100, you subtract your age. I'm 29, so the result is 71. You have to read 71 pages before you can put down the book. That's their rule. So the older you get, the less you have to read because the wiser you've become. And I think that's a really cool framework as well if, if people are looking for a more definite answer. I agree. What about access to more affordable books? I know we briefly touched on this whenever we first started talking. I think Goodwill is great. Once again, I'm picking up books for, for 20 cents each. Your local library is another really great option. Anything else come to mind whenever you think about affordable access to books if, if somebody wants to start reading more often but just can't afford to go to Barnes & Noble and drop $200 on, on you know, five or six books? <laughs> it's a great question. It's actually not something that I've spent a ton of time thinking about because like you highlighted a minute ago, I'm gifted 100 books a month. I, I didn't even sign up for these lists. I'm just on every publisher's list. I just <laughs> automatically get copies of these books. I'm very fortunate in that way. I'm grateful. I'm not trying to say that that's a burden at all because it's definitely not. I'm guessing the strategy is start a book-loving Instagram or TikTok, get on all of these authors' mailing list, and, and you'll have a plethora of free books. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So that's one strategy. I love platforms like Kindle Unlimited or Audible because... Mm -hmm. You sign up for a subscription, a monthly subscription, and then a bunch of additional content comes in a big library that you have access to. So for $15 or $10 a month, you can get access to essentially an unlimited number of books using platforms like that. I know that a lot of local libraries have broader access to information as well. I forget what some of those programs are called, yeah. but you can get a free 
local library membership that includes unlimited audiobooks and ebooks and things like that in these bigger networks. So, yeah, there's so many great resources available. One of the stories that resonated with me when I first heard it was Ben Carson. Ben Carson, successful neurosurgeon, has done some political things as well, ran for president, I think, back in 2016. But he grew up in Chicago in a household with his brother and his mom. And she was illiterate. I mean, she literally couldn't read. But she would send Ben and his brother to the local library and have them, I think they had to read a full book each weekend and do a book report before they could go out and play. Wow. And the funny thing was that she couldn't even read the book report that they had written. But she knew that giving them access to this information and having them read a wide variety of info diverse perspectives would create a better life for them than she had. And so that's the power of free books. I mean, everybody has a library in their town or in the city that they're, that they're in, and you can go in and read for free. And I think that's amazing. Yeah. Or simply ask, ask friends that you know are, are readers. Many of us are, are more than willing to either give you some of the books that are on our shelves and or let you borrow those, assuming that you sign and date and, and give those back at a <laughs> somewhat relevant timeline. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Nick, you got a, a great platform called BookThinkers. You have a new book coming out called Rise of the Reader. Do you want to share a little bit about the book and what people can expect if they go out and they purchase it? Sure. Well, Rise of the Reader, Strategies for Mastering Your Reading Habits and Applying What You Learn teaches so many of the, the same concepts that we've talked about today and so many more. I love this Napoleon Hill quote. I may have mentioned it earlier, but it's been on my mind a lot recently. Action is the real measure of intelligence. And my book, Rise of the Reader, will help you, the reader, take more action, better action on every book you read for the rest of time. That's my goal. There's an opportunity cost to reading other personal development material before you read my book. That's how confident I am. I'm going to plant the flag in the ground and say that. Because I was a young 20-something reading and attempting to implement books, and it took me 500 experiences to get to where I am today. And the where I am today with my process is wildly different than it was back then. So again, I spent a lot of time and money not getting as much out of these books as I could have. So that's what the book is all about. I also touch on some life philosophy, some things that I've I've learned over the years reading and implementing these books that I think is important, like remembering your own mortality, living without regret, living up to your potential. What does that mean? Defining purpose. A lot of those lessons are baked into the book as well. Nick, my final question for you. If you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? Other than retaining and implementing more from the books you read, I think I would teach personal finance. Yeah, let's do it. Personal finance 101. I mean, as it's said in Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, the subject of money and financial literacy is not taught in the public education system, at least not in most areas of our country. And so it's typically taught in the home, which means that if you grow up in a poor or middle-class family, you're going to learn, fortunately, poor and middle-class money habits, observing your family's behavior. And if you want to break that chain, you have to be educated. You have to learn from rich people who have written books about managing personal finances. And so 
I was, listen, I grew up in the best household ever. I mean, I love my parents to death. It was like the white picket fence thing that you dream about. But the subject of personal finance, it just wasn't really taught. And so after reading all of these books on personal finance, like my money management systems, they're clean, they're effective, they're easy. And I just, I'm blown away that most people aren't taught these things. So that's probably what I would teach. You mind giving us three to four recommendations on personal finance books? You don't have to dive into them. I, I know that's a, a challenge whenever you're recommending books, but a couple of your favorites that you picked up, especially early on in your personal finance journey. Sure. I will teach you to be rich by Ramit Sadie. Cashflow Quadrant by Robert Kiyosaki. I think the Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey to get kind of an, a different perspective, debt versus no debt. And then what's the fourth one that I'd like to recommend? Probably The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. It's a really great book. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So many good ones in that list there. Once again, Nick Hutchinson, he is the founder of Book Thinkers, author of the new book, Rise of the Reader, subtitled Strategies for Mastering Your Reading Habits and Applying What You Learned. Nick, man, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Appreciate you, Justin. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the episode. As always, I appreciate your kind words. If you want to leave us a rating and review on your podcast player right now, that would absolutely make my day. If you want to find episode show notes, our blog, and other great resources, head over to tsirpodcast.com. If you have follow-up questions, an idea for a future episode, or just want to say hi, we have a contact form on our website and those messages go straight into my inbox and I promise you, I will reply. But all right, guys, I really appreciate you tuning in. I love you all and you're not alone. Let's keep making it through our struggles together. <laughs>